This program is brought to you by Suffolk University. Please visit us on the web at www.suffolk.edu. Good morning. My name is Bill Young. I'm a judge of the United States District Court for the District of Massachusetts. I'm honored to be asked by Suffolk Law School to speak briefly on a topic of interest to me in the intellectual property area. And I'm going to do precisely that because this is a current topic and all aspects of it have yet to be worked out. You will understand that what I'm saying is drawn from cases and issues of which I am aware, but I give no particular prediction as to where we're going with respect to this topic. I'm speaking more in the nature of continuing legal education, and certainly I am making no comment on any pending case. But here's the issue. The Federal Circuit has declared in a series of cases that expert opinions offered on various topics must meet certain standards. And the topics that they express concerning what requirements of expert opinions are include the doctrine of equivalence, the defenses of anticipation and obviousness. And with respect to each one of these things, the Federal Circuit requires not only that an expert opinion state the ultimate conclusion, that is, that the item is obvious or that the item infringes under the doctrine of equivalence, but also set forth in some express detail, depending upon the nature of the issue, the grounds for that opinion. And the Federal Circuit holds such expert opinions to that standard whenever the issue is raised. That is, they will look at an expert opinion that forms the basis for a decision on appeal and decide, no, this opinion does not meet the standard and therefore cannot count with respect to that issue. Now, that is the law as declared by the Federal Circuit, and all lower courts are bound to follow it. The problem with that is that it appears to be in conflict with the Federal Rules of Evidence, which in Rules 703 and 704 state unequivocally that an expert, if duly qualified, may give her opinion as to an ultimate issue without supplying the grounds of that opinion, and it is left to the cross-examiner to attack those grounds before the fact-finder. This is, it seems to me, in complete conflict with the decisions in the patent area of the Federal Circuit, which opt not for allowing the ultimate opinion to be expressed and then undercutting it on cross-examination, but testing ab initio whether the opinion is supported by the specific grounds. Now, personally, I rather like the approach taken by the Federal Circuit. It is the approach that I learned when I was years ago, a justice of the Massachusetts Superior Court. You don't want the expert just jumping out there with her ultimate 
conclusion unless you understand what the basis of that conclusion is. But that's not the choice made by the federal rules of evidence, and those rules likewise to the Federal Circuit decisions have the force of law. Moreover, we know in the Supreme Court decision of Daubert versus Merrill Dow that it is not open to the lower federal courts, district and circuit courts. It was the Ninth Circuit in Daubert. It's not open to those circuits or district courts to engraft onto the federal rules of evidence additional requirements. They are to be treated like statutes. So says the Supreme Court in Daubert. Yet the jurisprudence of the Federal Circuit appears to have done precisely that. Now, I'm a district judge. I can't pick and choose as between the two regimes. I've written all of this up in a case recently published called New River versus New Kirk. And in that opinion, I offer my approach since I am governed by both regimes, and that is that I will be proactive to scrutinize every expert opinion proffered on these issues where I know that the Federal Circuit requires the express detailing of the support for that opinion. And again, they are the doctrine of equivalence, anticipation, and obviousness. And when I say proactive, I'm not waiting for an objection. I'm not waiting for someone to point out that the opinion is defective. Given the Federal Circuit standard, I conceive that it is my duty to look myself to see whether it is defective. Well, that's all well and good. And if you're interested in this issue or what I have to say, go ahead and read New River. Now I pose to you another issue as to which I express no opinion, except it follows from my proactive stance. Suppose, as frequently happens in patent cases, a motion for partial summary judgment is made on any one of these three issues to wipe that issue out of the case. And in support of the moving party's position, that moving party supplies an expert affidavit. Now, suppose further that the expert affidavit provided is inadequate. One would suspect, and any judge would, deny the motion for summary judgment. We all understand that. That's what everyone does. But if the expert opinion is inadequate, and under First Circuit law, which in the First Circuit as this is a procedural matter, the Federal Circuit will follow. The First Circuit has a very beneficent, at least for case management, rule. A party who moves for summary judgment in the First Circuit may have judgment taken against that party if there is no genuine issue of material fact, and on the governing law, a judgment must be entered against even the moving party. So what happens here? A moving party moves for partial summary judgment, but does not adequately support the motion. Does it follow, then, that the motion is not simply denied, rather summary or partial summary judgment is entered against the moving party, and the court rules 
for example. No, the defense of obviousness is out of the case because this expert opinion is inadequate. The defense of anticipation is out of the case, same reason. Or infringement under the doctrine of equivalence is out of the case, no adequate support for it. Now, I can conceive of a beneficial result from that, which ought to make you concerned that I, at least, am exploring this option. And the beneficial result is this. All too often, in patent cases, you will get not a single motion for summary judgment or partial summary judgment raising various defenses. You will get a slew of such motions, eight, ten motions. And what appears to be happening if a counsel is well-heeled is that they will make a motion and dribble out one expert opinion, uh, see what the court thinks of that. If that's inadequate, they will come back to the issue. Now, if, as I posit, I've never done this, and I'm not saying that I will, but if, as I posit, an inadequate opinion is the equivalent of no opinion at all, and the issue is open to be concluded, if I ruled the other way, knocking, for instance, obviousness out of the case, that would emphasize the need for the moving party. If you're going to put an issue in play on summary judgment, then you better come forward with everything you've got, everything you've got, and see what happens. Because if you don't, and the court rules against you, that defense may be out of the case. And by out of the case, I mean out of the case. You're not entitled then at trial to raise that defense. You've lost it, all because you moved for partial summary judgment and you did not adequately support it. What do you think about that? Thanks for listening. If you have questions or comments, Suffolk has graciously agreed that if you contact, really, the producer of this soundbite, Ian Mankini, and his email address is i-m-e-n-c-h-i-n at suffolk.edu with your question or comment, he'll be sure to get it to the appropriate faculty member. Thanks for listening. This preceding program was brought to you by Suffolk University. Please visit us on the web at www.suffolk.edu.